Hello and welcome to another episode of AdventuresIn.net. I'm Sean Cable, your host. And with me today, your co-host, Mark Miller. Hey, Mark. Sean! Hey! How you doing, buddy? Good, good. Uh, I'm a pro now, man. I heard. I've done I it heard. for a full show already. <laughs> and I'm still back. You haven't figured out how to, how to mute me yet, I think. Well, I, I can do that right now, you know. Uh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll give you a chance. Yeah, <laughs> give me another, give me another yes. chance. That's well, all I ask, Sean. You haven't used all your strikes up, so just yeah, one, you're good. We'll one keep more you. episode, <laughs> please. <laughs> okay, um, let's welcome our guest. So let's bring on Ted Spence. Hey, Ted. Hey, thanks for having me. Love the energy you guys have already. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mark, uh, Mark is well known for his energy. So <laughs> sure we are. <laughs> Well, I just got off of uh, giving a talk at Bellevue College about renewable energy, so it's a fun world to be in. Bellevue College in where? Uh, Bellevue College in Washington. Uh, we had Earth Week this week, so we talked about a lot of things related to uh, climate. And uh, I teach data analytics there, so I talked about data uh, about renewable energy. It was a ton of fun, and clearly Mark's got renewable energy in droves. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, I am uh, from a small town. I guess it's not so small anymore, just uh, south of there. So I'm from Puyallup. So brilliant. But but uh, I live in Idaho now. So I, I think it's pronounced Pooey-a-loop. <laughs> Pretty sure about that, Sean. You better check. Have you been there, Mark? Uh, not to Puyallup. I, I, but I did. I actually grew up in Bellevue. I went to school in Bellevue as a kid. So, yeah, I walked around there, you know, before it all grew. I was there when it was a much smaller kind of town, but yeah, it's pretty cool. So you fantastic. Had to, My daughter loves uh, Yellow Fair. Yeah, uh, it's one of her favorite every year. Fair, Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fair. Well, I've been I've been to the fair. I, I have a couple <laughs> times. So yeah, I have been there. All right, cool. All right, Ted. So we're gonna talk today about everybody's favorite topic: security. Yeah, security is just one of those things that if you're not talking about it, you really should be because somebody is probably attacking your product as we speak. It's uh, really critical and you have to worry about it. And I have a little story, if you don't mind me leading off with. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so this was uh, quite a few years ago. It was probably six or seven years ago. Um, I was building an API for a really large company, Avalara. They do taxes. And they wanted a new API. So we held an internal hackathon to teach people about this new API that we were about to launch. And halfway through the hackathon, somebody raised their hands. We were all in a meeting room together. And somebody raised their hand like, oh my gosh, I found something. They had found a rarely used API. And they found that if they used it and they guessed a random number, they were able to fetch their neighbor's data. And we were like, oh my gosh, you know, what's, what's going on here? Well, clearly, we were storing all the data in the same database. And this person had figured out an attack to bypass our security protections. So yeah, I bet you can ask me how we solved it. <laughs> I, I just want to say that's not a good, that's not good. I mean, it's good that you found it. That's the thing. That's the point of hackathons is we wanted to be extremely careful and extremely prepared. And uh, because of it, we were prepared. But what we did is we reacted appropriately. Rather than just fixing that one bug, we said, wait a minute, this particular problem is extremely serious. It should never have gotten to this point. How can we redefine our system so it is fundamentally not possible for this to ever happen again? Yeah. 
And that's really the right approach, is people can tell you you have a security problem, but it's how you react to the security problem that defines your security levels. So what about those people that, you know, they're going, I don't need to do security. Whatever's in my system, it's all public, you know, out to a website or whatever there. I don't need to worry about security. You know, if they break in, they break in. You know, big deal. Well, you know, there's a lot of sites that are just built that way. And I'll tell you, those are the sites that don't last. If you build a site and you don't spend time thinking about security, sooner or later, all sorts of bad things will happen. Um, you know, I was a .NET developer uh, early on. Prior to that, I wrote code in all sorts of other systems, including CGI binaries in the 90s. And no matter what we built, people would find ways to break it sooner or later. And so we had to redefine our thinking and be prepared for it. So if I can just carry through with the story then, uh, we came out of this hackathon going, oh my goodness, we're really glad we did this. We have a couple of months before this API goes live. How are we going to solve it? We said, well, we obviously need to fix this one bug. And that was a really easy bug to fix. But the next thing that we said is, you know what? Fundamentally, our biggest worry is we never want to allow anyone to fetch data they are not entitled to look at. And by doing that, we said, all right, we're going to define all of the data that our API can serve up. And we defined a standard interface in the .NET language, a standard interface that all of our data had to derive from. And we specified that there would be a middleware filter, and that middleware filter would check the data to see is the currently logged in user permitted to see this data object? And that solution meant that there was always an extra layer of security behind our API, which would protect this data from unauthorized access. It meant that it didn't matter how many bugs there were, we would catch them. And obviously, we put a lot of effort into this. Do you know how many bugs we had after that? Probably five. Still lots of bugs. Five? Five? I hear five. Yeah, yeah five. I'm going to say five. I'm going five. 42. 42. All right. Well, uh, I will tell you that in the uh, years that I managed the Avalara API, uh, there was only once ever after where we got an error. And the thing is that error was caught by this extra layer of security. Um, we had a system which would alert us the instant this happened. And it never happened because we were extremely careful during development. And only once when it went to the sandbox level did somebody actually manage to trigger a uh, security issue. And obviously then it was easy to fix. And was that, that triggering of the issue unintentional? Was it accidental? Or was, it, was there some nefariousness? Or was somebody trying to, maybe on an internal red team, trying to, trying to trigger it? No, it was entirely accidental. It was, uh, uh, there was one of our uh, uh, technical sales engineers that was preparing a demo for someone, and they had come across an API that they could uh, trigger a security exception in. They're like, why does this thing trigger a security exception? Never heard of that before. And that was the one and only ever time that this security layer was triggered in practice. Did so you ever is... try to do any like penetration testing on it? Oh, know? yes. So uh, obviously, the hackathon was the first stage in the process of building a robust API, because clearly what you do is you segment user data. So we store data for one user completely separately from data from another user, and you need to make sure that each user is completely and rigidly isolated from it. Um, but then you find that there are a ton of APIs, and people are always building new APIs, and you have to test them all. 
And simply enforcing the security layer was really helpful because since we used an interface, we had another function that said no API in our system can return data to a user that does not implement this interface. And so that was actually the thing that stopped our developers uh, from adding bad APIs. Because if somebody's writing code and they start testing it, they're going to get this error saying, you attempted to return data that doesn't implement our security interface rules. I love it. And this was the huge thing. This was the thing that really made the difference for us. Yeah, this is so cool. This is like, this is a little bit like, you know, the the kind of, the the step from never unit testing or not having unit testing to to going in and realizing oh i can use code to check my code right exactly. i can i can i can use things like like attributes or interfaces to specify how one piece of code communicates and connects to, to the other and even in a meta level right at a meta level or stepping outside of that in this case looking at security Right, I think this and is such it's a interesting that you mentioned the meta level too, because this is also the fundamental technique that Meta or Facebook uses to uh, manage its data as well. So you're probably familiar with over the years, Facebook has had to uh, go in front of a lot of governments and uh, answer questions about security. You've seen that on the news, right? Right. Well, what they did internally is they went and defined contracts for all of their data objects, and they defined it using their own programming language. But the end result was basically the same. Every data object had on it an interface that controlled its rules. And those rules were examined before the data was used. Yeah. No, I love it. I especially love this idea that you cannot implement a new API without implementing that, that interface that's required, the security interface. If you don't, you're just rejected automatically because of that. And I, I really like that as kind of a low-level defensive kind of strategy, right, as you're building. And Indeed, and that's, that's really the critical aspect of API design, is what we're trying to do is to set forth patterns and enforce behavior uh, from our developers, because we're always under pressure. We're always about to ship something. We're always ready to launch new code, but we need to define what are the rules, what are the commitments that we make. And so this is just like how we have a test that ensures that our API is documented. We have a test on Swashbuckle. Are you familiar with Swashbuckle? Uh, I think I barely know it. I think yeah, I've that, heard of it. <laughs> it's, the, uh, it's the open API implementation for uh, sometimes called Swagger. Uh, at least it used to be known as Swagger before they changed the name to open API. Right. right. I, I've used it a little bit. That's it for me. Well, in Swagger, uh, you can define documentation for your API. Well, if you don't do that, your API is going to be really hard to use. So we have unit tests that examine all of our objects, and they throw an assertion error if there's no documentation for a method, or if there's no documentation for an object, or if there's no documentation for a field. So if somebody tries to add an API in a rush, they're going to see a unit test fail, and we stop them from shipping something without thinking it through. And is that across the board, regardless of visibility, or is it only for public-facing API calls and classes? Well, this is, a, uh, this is a constant debate. And I've faced this problem a number of times. I come down on the side that there should be no hidden non-public APIs. And the reason I say this is not because I think every customer out there should be able to use every API. 
it's because when I hire an auditor or when I hire a penetration tester, I want to be able to show them these are all of my APIs, including the ones that are sensitive. Right. I don't want them to have to guess and luck into something. I also don't want something to be hidden and have an end user or a hacker out there discover it. So do you get do you have a sense that there's a uh, a frictional force against the speed of development since now everything needs to be carefully documented, right? We're we're moving forward maybe more carefully and less uh, directly, less slicing through the problem. We are carefully approaching the problem. Do you, I guess there's there's maybe I guess a two part question. Is, is it do do you have a sense of of a quality increase, and you have also a sense that maybe there's a slowdown? Is there an impact on speed of development, and is there an impact on quality? Well, there's there's an impact from everything that you do as a team, and I think it's important for your team to agree on what the right level of uh, checking uh, to have. Um, because anytime you as a team make a commitment, you need to have universal buy-in. If you don't have universal buy-in across your teams, they're going to circumvent whatever measures you have. Um, you know, another example would be if you're working in TypeScript. Um, it's possible to develop TypeScript while still allowing people to use the keyword any. But most TypeScript developers that I know of tend to forbid any uh, as a type. Um, and I think that's just a decision. Like, you can make that as a team, but you have to ask your team to buy in. So I've recently started working with Project Manager. Uh, it's an excellent company based, uh, most of the engineers are based out of New Zealand. And they have very different decisions than I have historically. But as a team, they come together and they make decisions on what they are willing to do as a team, what commitments they're looking to make. And we document those decisions and we implement them and we have unit tests for them. I could see people uh, circumventing that by just going, my documentation is to do, document this. <laughs> it's <laughs> so quite I, common. <laughs> so I, so I, okay, so I, I get total buy-in, but I'm still looking for a sense, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and answer that question. Do you have an overall, looking back mm. on this time where you've had universal buy-in, where you've gone in and said, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to add this extra layer of security. We're going to add these checks that are essentially going to uh, uh, throw throw errors or fail test cases if we don't have documentation. Do you have a sense of, of the impact of that when you look at Well, it? what I will say is that there's a different factor that I also see, which is people afraid to commit code. I will often find that a developer is working on a sensitive API and they say, you know, I just need another day to look at this. I'm really worried about this API. I need another day to look at it. And so in a lot of cases, developers will be cautious and they'll slow roll individual pull requests. And what I see is that these tests, they may slow down the actual writing of code, but they speed up by eliminating some of the worries and the hesitations that developers have. Um, I don't know. I do think that it probably slows people down, just like I'm sure there's developers out there who would rather write in uh, Ruby, which is a kind of open typing language, rather than a language where types are strictly enforced. Um, there's a good comment. Uh, have you heard people talk about Rust, where they talk about uh, the type safety and enforcement in Rust? Well, uh, this was going around a lot when I was working at Facebook, and people would say, you know what? Rust 
requires me to define everything. It requires me to label everything. It requires me to give every object a lifespan. But at the same time, they'll say, I can just write whatever code I want and I'll trust that it will work. So I kind of like that philosophy. It's a good approach. It's use tools to help guard yourself against obvious mistakes. So it seems a lot of this is kind of at the uh, authorization level of security. How does this apply to the authentication section of security? Oh, that's a good point. Um, Obviously, some companies treat authorization and authentication as a single element, and some companies treat them differently. Um, What I find is that I have a lot of security rules that say this object is restricted to people who are an owner of this account. So that's a very common security rule. Like, this object is sensitive information about the account. The only people who can view it are owners. So obviously, just having authenticated doesn't, uh, it isn't sufficient to reach that level of security rule. But on the other hand, the authorization level where you check the user and you check their permissions, that's where you get a lot of value out of this. But on the other hand, there are some um, simple APIs, such as just fetching some data or or retrieving something that uh, really only require validating that a user is entitled to log in. Um, I wonder if I could think of a good example of this. Um, At Avalara, we had informational APIs. And those informational APIs were just about free data about governments that we were willing to provide to anyone. And so those APIs would require uh, authentication only, but no authorization rules. I hope that helps. Uh, that, that may have been a, a bit... Yeah, uh, yeah definitely. Everybody definitely. loves talking yeah. taxes. <laughs> well, I just did mine, so... Uh, <laughs> nice. Got that done, out of the way. How so, much did you owe? <laughs> no, I can't ask you that. <laughs> no. so, so, Ted, if I can share my experience with you, um, we made, like, I want to say decade plus ago, we made a transition from, you know, having a few test cases to being very disciplined about writing test cases. And, uh, and, and a few things that I noticed in that process. Um, one of the things is I noticed is, is that, uh, the developers all became, uh, noticeably more proficient and faster at writing test cases than they were when they first started. Um, so that's uh, observation one. Observation two is uh, we started getting a, a blanket of what I would call a nice blanket of test cases, something like twenty to 40,000, I think, around that level. Um, I started feeling incredibly confident every time it was time for a, a new release. Right, you run those test cases. Everything's green. You have a really strong sense that you're not breaking anything. Right when you you put that out there, and and uh, and part of this was was fueled by you know an internal policy that said uh, if there's a bug, we write a test case first. We cannot f- fix or close a bug without a test case. Um, and then secondarily, uh, an active search for ways to throw more data at the test, in, in, to process more data through the test cases. So we were able to um, essentially automate the creation of test cases in many, in many ways. Uh, and and so, so overall, initially, there's a slowdown, right? So I guess I, 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 you notice an initial kind of slowdown in progress. 
and there's more effort and focus and concentration because you can't just write the feature and dismiss it, right? You have to give it more attention. But what happens is, is that your quality does go up, at least for, for me with the test cases. We're like, yeah, quality is definitely going up. The quality of this code is higher. Uh, and the second piece that was a bit of a surprise was that just the proficiency of the developers. They're, they're getting a little bit better. Right, they're getting. That's a really good point. If you force people to use their own APIs, if you force people to write tests for their own APIs, they need to think through how it works. Yeah, it's really good for an API, right? Mm -hmm. To 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 design the API from the client's perspective, because that's what you're doing, right? If you have Mm -hmm. to write test cases for it. And if I can put a pitch in there, um, I'm also a big fan of integration tests. And integration tests uh, get a lot of a bad name from people because integration tests are often considered slower than unit tests. They're often considered more brittle. But the idea of an integration test is that it actually works against a fully running system. Right. And I wrote uh, a very large suite of integration tests uh, at uh, Avalara, and those integration tests caught all sorts of interdependencies that unit tests couldn't see because they would encounter cases where two differing systems within our company would talk to each other in ways that seemed perfectly fine in practice, seemed seemed perfectly fine in theory, but uh, fell apart in practice. And then when you catch that, what happens then? Where, what well, do you it's, do? <laughs> it's really you just, tough. Do you you just, have to reach out to other people and convince them that your test shows something. Right. And do you, it's not easy. And do you keep just the, the integration test? Is the only the, Does the integration test now become the only flag? Or do you go back to the code and say, wait, we our unit tests were not covering certain combinations. We need to go back in and, and fix that, address that, which could then lead to an architecture change. Right. So that you can go in and actually connect these two pieces together and see it. Like, does that happen? Did that happen with you? Any kind of. It does happen. But I also find that uh, just temperamentally, a lot of my developers were 100% on the side of unit tests or 100% on the side of integration tests. So oftentimes, some people would just be completely like, oh, I won't ever touch this integration test thing. And uh, it would take time for them to be convinced that it was a real issue. Yeah, I am like, I'm that guy. I'll tell you, I, <laughs> I'm the guy who's a little nervous of integration tests because I consider them incredibly complex. And when I watch them run, so I don't write them. I don't think I've run it, written a single integration test. But when I watch them run, it's a little scary because all of these windows are popping up. This is on a, a this is an application running on Windows. So they're just popping up really fast. I'm looking, I'm going, how are we testing anything? How can this be real? How can this be safe? This is what's going on in my head, right? I'm that guy who I find incredible safety in unit tests, especially a really mm-hmm. well-designed architecture that can really allow it to be fully, deeply tested. I, I am that guy. That's where I, that's the island I want to stand on. The integration island is scary to me. It is definitely tests. scary. And like an example of the type of thing that it helped us to find was we would have this incredibly low level of a problem that didn't make any sense. The problem was, you know, failed to create a transaction for this company. And be like, what's going on? Why is this transaction failing? Everything about this was exactly correct. And eventually we got an integration test that discovered that if you created a company and started using it within the next 200 milliseconds, things would fail. Uh, Yeah. 
And well, okay, it didn't show up in the unit tests because the unit tests asserted that everything was either not done or not done. It's beautiful. So how do you, Uh, so what do you do? How do you get that? Like, like, you know, for me, you know, the first thing I want to do is I want to say, okay, integration tests discovered it, but now we've got to go back. We've got to fix the architecture. We've got to create a unit test. Did, did you guys end up doing that? Is that what happened in this case? Or, or are you know, I are wish we... I could say exactly what we did about this one. I have to confess this, this issue is probably seven years old now, and I don't remember exactly the answer. But I, I think the uh, solution was perhaps just as simple as um, addressing the delay in generation of the object. Yeah. So like one API call would generate the object. Well, that API call needed to wait until the object was fully generated before it could return. So this is this is super cool. Um, you know, documentation. So so let, let me tell you about my, my personal experience with documenting existing functions and API calls. So I create an API that's essentially only used by my team. That's it, you know, I, or you could even argue by me, because a lot of times when I'm doing my live streaming, I'm creating stuff that that's for no one's consumption but my own. And when and on this on the live stream when I'm coding live, I will rarely write out documentation because it's slow to do and it's kind of boring to watch. However, I will sometimes do it. And in the times that I've done it, in the methods that I have created documentation for, boy, do I feel relieved about a year later when I'm going in and looking at it. Right. Wait. And I have a question. Right. Because because in the moment I might do something a little little quirky because I'm, you know, under pressure, writing code live, doing it fast, that sort of thing. Uh, And and that quirky thing I did, I've forgotten all about, you know, after, you know, a year or a couple months, whatever. And I go back in. So so I do acknowledge it's like I acknowledge that it's like taking care of myself is a good thing to do. I acknowledge that, right? Riding my bike slowly around corners would cause me to fall less, right? Than if I go, you know, high speed, I acknowledge the right thing to do. And sometimes I do it. And when I do it, I feel good. Um, but but yeah, there is a, for me, there is kind of, there's a slowdown I notice, right? It's a change. It's a change in your attitude. You've, you, you know, it's like totally. this buy-in idea that you're talking about, right? Well, there's, there's other ways to think of it. Sure, you're slowing yourself down because you're writing extra stuff and you're making yourself think through how you would define it in English language or whatever your preferred language is in comments or in documentation. Sure, you're defining that, but um, there's that great anecdote. You write the code once, but you read it eight times. So you're going to come back eight times over the course of this project and you're going to come back and read the code, maybe it's going to be soon and you'll remember everything. Maybe it's going to be, as you said, a year later and you won't. So you got to prepare yourself for the fact that sure, you're slowing yourself down in the moment, but the end result is that you'll get more velocity later on. Yeah. Um, another way I like to tell people is um, that writing comments and documentation is your way of rubber ducking your own code. So if you don't have a pair programmer to work with you, some people will say they'll get this little rubber duck. And I have a little ceramic duck that I keep on my desk here. So I talk to them every once in a while. But uh, some people will keep a duck and they'll talk through the code to the duck and they'll explain it to the duck and that will help them think through and spot edge cases. Well, you can use documentation. You can use comments and documentation to be just like this duck. 
by writing it down, you're going to help yourself spot those problems that you might have overlooked if you were just rushing out the code. Yeah. In one yeah, quack, is... it's good. and two quacks, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you, there's a lovely creek nearby my house called uh, Longfellow Creek. And uh, a couple months ago, I saw this absolutely beautiful duck called a spotted merganser. And it was the most beautiful duck I've ever seen in my life. You have a chance to look it up. Spotted merganser online. Absolutely gorgeous. Was way too shy. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't coax it out for a good photograph. But uh, uh, you got to love, gotta love uh, uh, nature here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I think you just totally doxed yourself, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do live on the island of West Seattle. And uh, we are finally reconnected to the mainland now that our bridge has been working for the uh, uh, past year or so. That's like everything I need to know. I know exactly where you live now. I'm oh, zooming totally. in on your home. Go right ahead. Well, you know, I publish these things and I do blog on tedspence.com. So I have lots of articles up there about API design. And if I can share one other interesting little tidbit, are you familiar with um, GUID record IDs? like record IDs being generated as GUIDs? I guess kind of. I guess kind of. So a lot of websites nowadays, a lot of APIs are generating records as GUIDs because they're pretty convenient and they're pretty unique and they're easy to generate. Well, there is a real annoying usability problem with GUIDs, which is that if you want to copy and paste a GUID, you try to double click on it, you can't copy and paste the entire GUID. If you double click on it, it will only select part of the text. Right. So uh, I have an article up on my website where I use a technique from Bitcoin to generate uh, what's called a base 58 string. And the base 58 string is an example of a single long string that you can just double click and copy and paste, but it converts under the hood into a GUID. So you can just basically write a little .NET mapping layer to convert these strings into GUIDs and back again. And it just makes your API a little bit easier for devs to work with. That's really interesting. You know, for one of the projects that I was working on, we had a bunch of log files with loaded with GUIDs. And one of the things I did, we didn't have the problem with copying and pasting, but we had the problem of uh, human analysis, right? Going in and looking at it. And what we ended up doing is creating uh, an alias system. So what we did is I, I basically grabbed a dictionary of five and six letter words, words that were about that long. I, I, I cleaned up, took out words that were really close together, that were only off by one letter. And then we just started doing aliases. So we could very quickly look at aliases and say, oh, this is, you know, you know, uh, hashtag banana. And oh, there's another banana. I can very quickly spot those right there and see those. Brilliant. Right? Kind of, I love kind it. Of, kind of interesting. Logging is an absolutely fantastic thing, but uh, it's so hard when you get a volume of logs that are just mind-boggling to deal with. And I love that technique. It's like giving yourself something simple and easy that you can search through very rapidly, giving yourself a tag that you can identify. That, yeah. That's great. No, I found, it, I found it really super useful for going in because you'd be looking at a page in a spreadsheet and there would be, you know, imagine, you know, 20 GUIDs up there and now I'm replace it with like five words and they're mm -hmm. showing up there. It's so much easier to say, okay, there it is, there it is, there it is. And I'm so glad we've gone past the era of regular expressions, just searching through raw text. I mean, maybe, maybe you dealt with this 15 years ago like I did, but uh, I, I used to use log systems where it would just be one massive stream of bytes. 
And all you would do is just write a regex to search for what you wanted. and Hopefully you'd find something and chances are you never would. Nowadays, we have structured logs and really good systems and I love it. Yeah. So is, uh, is security handled any differently, whether you're a small group or a large group? Well, uh, it's really just a matter of when you're going to pay the price. I'd say sooner or later, you're going to get hit with it. Um, I've worked for small companies that tried to do something extremely rapidly and extremely quickly. And it just meant that, you know, they would push that day off uh, a year or two to when they would have to face the security challenges. Um, you know, back in the 90s, we used to be able to protect ourselves just with firewall rules, but that's not really possible anymore because everything can go through your API. Everything goes through HTTP. So for a small company, sure, maybe you want to get started without doing everything as exhaustive as possible, but there are some great templates. Um, I have up on my GitHub account an example API that I'm building to try to show off these techniques. It doesn't have to be slow. You could design an API that uses these techniques and you could still make things happen really quickly. Um, but, you know, maybe that's just me. Maybe, maybe I've been doing it for long enough that I'm familiar with it. One of the one of the other issues I've always had with documentation is quite often the documentation doesn't keep up with what the code is actually doing. You know, you write the, the comments or the code, the documentation, when you first write the code, then you have to go back at some point in time and you make changes to the code and you don't update the documentation. So quite often, it's stale compared to what the code is actually doing. That's, uh, that's a common complaint. Uh, when I was working at Facebook, people would uh, send reviews on my pull requests, which were called diffs at Facebook. Uh, they, would send, um, they would send reviews and say, remove this comment. And I'd say, why? And they'd say, well, it's just going to get stale and then it's going to be a problem. I'm like, well, it's accurate now. And they'd say, well, it's going to be inaccurate at some point in the future. Um, I personally like that. Um, I find it a kind of redundancy. It's something like a CRC for your code. If you write the same thing twice and you make a mistake or somebody changes it, you can see, hey, wait a minute, this was changed from its original definition. I need to rethink this and say, is this comment correct or is the code correct? Um, I find that personally useful. I know a lot of people don't, and I don't begrudge other people their disagreements with me because we live in a world of a million people with a million different ideas. Oh, I'm going to begrudge them, Ted. <laughs> there we go. Because <laughs> I'm yeah, on your side. I'm on yeah. your side on this one. Yeah, I actually, I actually, there have been times where I've, I've noticed, oh, look at this XML doc comment in my C-sharp code. It's highlighted differently. Why is that? Oh, because I manually deleted a parameter, but didn't take care of the documentation. In other words, the syntax highlighting can sometimes reveal an out-of-sync state with the documentation. Also, kids, we're moving into, you know, AI pair programming world, and it's we're not far from a point where the AI, I think, is going to be able to, to highlight methods where the code description, the natural language description of what it's doing can be, can be flagged as it doesn't look like this method is actually doing that, right? So I'm, the, the, and which knowing that is way better than not ever having a comment there ever at all, right? Because the method name, for example, might reveal something or something, you know, uh, what you think is happening, but it's really maybe not happening. 
Totally. And I teach my students at Bellevue College, I teach them that it's really critical to just put citations in things. So when I teach them how to write a Jupyter notebook, for example, I say, look, you're going to be using techniques from each other. You're all going to be collaborating together to create data analytics solutions. I want you to put a comment in and say, so-and-so taught me how to do this. I want people to learn this as they go into the, uh, into the industry because this will stand them in good stead. I love it when people give credit to each other for the contributions that we make. I write a small amount of open source code. It's not super popular, but there's a couple people who use my stuff. And I am always grateful when I see somebody say, wow, I use Ted Spence's solutions here. So what are your thoughts on uh, the approach of just doing self-documenting code? Self-documenting code oftentimes is not. So people may look at something and say, it's perfectly self-documenting for me. And then I come back and look at it a month later and I say, wow, I'm not sure what they were using. So, um, you know, an example of this is in a big enterprise code base, you may have a business user. You may have a business user administration page. You may have a business user administration page settings toolkit. You may have a business user administration page settings toolkit mutator system. Well, okay, like sure, you've got a system that's got a whole bunch of names, but can you actually take all of those names and interpret how it's different from some other thing? You know, self-documenting code only works for the person who wrote it. Somebody else may have a good time figuring it out. They may have a bad time. And you don't know. You can't be sure. I think a rule that I would agree upon if I was on your team, Ted, would be that we could claim it. We could claim it as self-documenting if someone else can look at it and agree. It's you can't claim your own code that way, but somebody else could claim it. And that would be maybe a threshold that I would agree to. Well, there's a great phrase from Einstein, which is that everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Um, sooner or later, there's complexity. Writing code is complicated. Writing good code is even more complicated. And I think of code not so much as engineering, but more like the law. Uh, somebody out there is writing a law, and they're trying to cover all of the edge cases that are going to be hit in the real world. And they may do a good job, or they may not do a good job, but that law is going to exist either way. We are writing code. We're trying to handle cases. We're not assembling girders and bricks and cement. We're taking rules to handle data and behavior and interactions. And it's tricky to get it right. I should so, also ask, uh, are you familiar with the card game Magic the Gathering? Have you uh, seen that here in the uh, various cafes in the Pacific Northwest? I've, I've seen it. I've never played it. Ah, my son well, probably has. I like to tell people that laws are like Magic the Gathering. Every individual rule makes sense when you look at it on one card. But when it comes into conflict with other cards, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen. There's no way to guarantee exactly how people are going to interpret them. And code is difficult. When you have multiple systems interacting together, you're not sure whether stuff that is a unit-tested, perfect, exemplary system is going to work exactly the way that you want when it's put into the real world against another one. And that's why I like integration tests. Um, so, um, and we've, we've talked quite a bit about, you know, security and API documentation and things like that. Is there anything we haven't covered that we should go over? Well, I'd like to say, no matter how much work you put into your API, you're going to find somebody out there that disagrees with you. And you have to be prepared that 
you're never going to get everything you want and you're never going to have everyone sign off on your decisions. I have a lot of good articles up on my site about design decisions I've made. Things like, do I use enums? Things like, what should my data layer look like? Things like, how should I fetch multiple objects? Should I use GraphQL? Should I use OData? Um, you know, all sorts of choices out there. Nobody is ever going to be perfectly happy with what you've done. But if they can figure out how to solve their problem, they'll probably be okay with it. So that's why I like documentation so much. My little favorite story is uh, at one point, a uh, very large company, very big uh, firm called me up and said, Ted, we're going to start using the uh, this new API that you built for Avalara. We're going to start uh, writing code on it. We want a meeting with you on Monday. So line up all of your best engineers and explain to us how to use the API. So I lined up all of my engineers. I prepped everyone. Well, the meeting was canceled on Monday morning. I said, oh, no, what happened? Did you change your mind? They're like, no, one of our developers found your documentation over the weekend. It's already done. We don't need the meeting anymore. So I like that story. I thought that was a good one. All right, so uh, I guess uh, time to move on to picks. Um, Mark, do you want to go first with your pick? Yeah, I'm going to do it. This is, you know, last week I, I I brought everybody to London to go see Hamilton. This week <laughs> I'm going to do something slightly different. We're going to London again, but this time uh, it's going to be uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, the Escape Room, or the the Great Game. I'll get you a link in a second. I don't remember exactly what it is but this this is one of the things that we we ended the kids uh easter egg hunt with and it's one of the most beautifully designed escape rooms uh that i've been in now i'm an expert on good design and there were a few places where they failed good design almost on purpose they obscured some clues made them hard to see um they'll get my notes don't worry i'm going to send those to them but on the whole, it was feel it felt incredibly immersive. A wide variety of puzzles, different kinds of things that you had to solve. Um, it was it was always changing. A sense that you were actually in it with Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes from the BBC series, which is excellent, by the way. If you haven't seen that, I strongly recommend going. You know, hitting that first. But if you're in London and you like escape rooms, this thing was amazing. Uh, and just a side story on this, on the outside, to get in, you have to go up to a, to a store in a mall that's, that's, the name of the store is Doyle's Opticians. You have to ring the bell and say you're there for a routine examination. And that's when they bring you in through the optical store and then take you into the back, give you an eye test, and then reveal that it's actually the way to bring you in to uh, the, um, the Secret Service. Uh, the British Secret Service, and you're going to do some tests, and uh, Moriarty comes back from the dead to interfere, and, and at some point, you're, you're you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes is saying, do what Moriarty says for now, I'll try to do my best to help out, and you're getting pulled in, and you realize that you are, you're, you solving the puzzles is actually going to lead to Moriarty's plan being fulfilled. And you realize that you're about to release poison under the city citizens of London. And maybe I've said too much, but it was amazing. And that part was really well done near the end. I loved it. I've not had a chance to do an escape room, but it uh, does sound like a lot of fun. You, do most of them have like, you know, I want an easy room. I want a, a medium hard or I want a difficult room. I don't think so. Most of the places just give you a variety of themes 
themes uh, to go after. One of the common themes is like a pharaoh's tomb or something like that, right? You're you're trapped. You've got an hour to, to get out before the curse of the pharaoh, you know, traps all of you and permanently locks you in there. Um, you know, I think that, you know, a good escape room, I think, gives you a sense of being there. It gives you puzzles that that maybe take a moment to figure out. And then while you after you figure it out, there's still logic involved in, in other words, you first have to figure out how to solve the puzzle, what the approach is. And then second, once you know how to solve it, you've still got pieces you've got to put together, you know, that sort of thing. Like if I give you a jigsaw puzzle, at some point, it'll take you a second to realize, oh, I got to put these pieces together if you've never seen one before, right? So there's generally two stages to solving a particular problem. And I love it when escape rooms build on accomplishments. So you've done one thing and now you can use that to solve maybe another problem, that sort of thing. But typically, if I can throw my pitch in here, uh, there's a place called Escape Artist uh, here in West Seattle, and they have uh, an escape room that I think is really phenomenal. It's called Dive to Atlantis. And why I think it's phenomenal is that it's a story that rather than just being a bunch of puzzles you have to solve, you are put into a situation where you're told, okay, there's a treasure and you have to follow all of these clues to get to the treasure. And at no, at no point during the uh, escape room did I feel like I was just solving random logic puzzles. It felt like I was trying to get into the submarine, trying to figure out how to make the submarine work, trying to get to the bottom of the ocean, then trying to break into this temple. And yeah. it was just fantastic. So no, uh, I, I can love, wholeheartedly yeah. recommend it. Yeah, really well done, right? So the idea, yeah, good escape rooms have great puzzles. They have a sense of story, a sense of progression. They have rooms that lead from one to another. And now you get into a new room and you've got to figure out what's going on in this room. And uh, yeah, I think that in general, the... The, the, um, the, the, you know, there was like a brilliant moment. Yeah, there were several brilliant moments in the Sherlock Holmes escape room the, in, uh, inside of, uh, in, in London. And I highly recommend it. I'll get you a link here in a second, Sean. So if you get stuck, is there a way to get hints or you just have to wait until yes. your time's out? Yeah, most escape rooms give you an ability to ask for a hint of some kind. Like you can, uh, I've been in escape rooms where they have a yes or no answer right? Well, policy. So you can ask a yes or no question. Like, am I supposed to do this? Do I correctly understand how to solve this puzzle? And they can say yes or no on that, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, you can get hints. The, the, the goal isn't for them to beat you. The goal is for you to have fun with your group or party that's in there. And so a really good escape room will also have the ability to nudge, right? To nudge you a little bit that's in the right direction. So yeah, totally. I've had cases where they uh, called me on the uh, uh, they called me on the headset or on the, the walkie talkie. And they said, Oh, I'm sorry, that light that you're looking at is broken right now. That's why you can't see that puzzle solution. So like just helps you when machines are having trouble. Yeah, I remember watching some reality show competition thing that had a lot of puzzles and things like that. And I remember they got to the end and they were in this kind of like a tomb type thing. And they were given a triptex. And just had to sit there and wait until somebody finally figured out the 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 code for the triptex, whatever. It ended up being FS key because uh, a lot of the story was based upon Francis Scott Key and things like that. So finally, you know, I don't know how many hours they were there. Um, of course, it wasn't that long in the show, but fi finally somebody just figured out, okay, FS key. They got out and they won. $3 million between the three of them. So amazing. Yeah. I like those types of things. 
Uh, I didn't get any money from these. <laughs> they just took my money. Yeah. So uh, my pick uh, this week, have you heard of bionic reading? I have not. No, no. New to me? It's, so uh, it, if you've got ADHD or anything like that, a lot of developers do. There, there, there's this thing called bionic reading. And basically what it does is it changes the font style of certain parts of words to make it uh, much easier to read. So it will bold, you know, certain parts of the word. And so your eyes will kind of, you know, fill in, your brain kind of fills in the spaces just based upon uh, the bright letters and things like that. So uh, it's, it's at bionic-reading.com. Okay, I'm freaking uh, out right now, Sean. This is yeah. awesome. Because yeah. I'm like, I'm immediately guessing, I'm guessing that the parts they're highlighting are the beginning and last letters. Or something close like that. Are they? No. Is that what? What? So, no, it's 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 quite different. So, I mean, I guess it is quite often the beginning. Uh, looking at their example here, but it will change. And I guess for the most part, it's probably the first letters. Looking at the example, but so there's apps for your phone. You can do that. Uh, there's extensions for Chrome. Hmm. I guess the the default Chrome extension for it is not very good, but there's one called Jiffy Reader that uh, works better for Chrome. And then Mads Christensen actually wrote an extension for Visual Studio that will do it in your code as well. So if, if you're interested in just kind of checking it out, uh, look at bionic-reading.com and then I'll put links to... Uh, the Visual Studio extension in the show notes, but you can also just, you know, search on Bionic Reading Visual Studio extension and it'll bring that up for you. This is very cool. It looks like it's really uh, highlighting the first part for the most part of each word. And it must be doing it in a way that it's trying to find uniqueness in this. Yeah, I don't know their actual algorithm for doing it, but, you know, when I looked at just their, their samples, it made it so much easier and quicker for me to to read quickly through what I was looking at, uh, you know, especially with, uh, you know, a mild case of ADHD that I am typically not patient enough to sit there and read something that's uh, very, very long. So the faster I can read, or read it, the better it is for me. I love so, it. Yep. Yeah. All right, Ted, you got a pick for us this week? Um, well, I'll give you uh, one of my favorite things to do here in the Pacific Northwest. Coming up in June, there is a fantastic event called the Georgetown Carnival. The Georgetown Carnival is this amazing street party. There's all sorts of food, there's activities, and there is the world-famous power tool races where they set up chainsaws and they race them down the street. Has to be seen to be believed. Uh, you'll love it. Uh, it's really just one of those weird, quirky things that Seattle does incredibly well. I know this isn't technically Seattle. It's the, the Georgetown neighborhood, but, uh, you know, same sort of thing. I love the weird parts of Seattle. I'm really glad it's coming back after the pandemic. Okay, these pictures are insane. Aren't they uh, great? The track looks like it's made of wood. And is it, do the cars actually tear up the wood? It looks like there's sawdust all around the, the track. 
They sure do. Uh, I've been there a couple times and oh boy, is it noisy and oh boy, is it hilarious. And it's just a ton of fun. They usually have a uh, booth set up by uh, Equinox Studios as well. And Equinox Studios puts up a sign that says art can kill you. And then they have amazing things like the Georgetown virtual roller coaster. Got to be seen to be believed. Wow. And are these, are the vehicles powered? Are they powered by a, a cord? That goes to them, it looks like that might be the case. Like they actually are towing along a power cord or are they battery powered? Do you know? Um, You know, it's been a while since I've seen them, but I remember them being uh, corded at the time. Yeah, these look corded, totally corded Mm -hmm. to me. So we're going to get spinning blades and electrical (laughs) cords and we're going to race on a track of wood. I'm in. What's not to love? I know. You first talked about power tools and I was thinking that they were going to be using like a power drill to to, you know, power their little, you know, soft soapbox derby car or something like that. <laughs> uh, not chainsaws. Well, my daughter went there a couple of years ago and uh, they helped her to weld a metal flower to a public art installation. A uh, year before that, she used a blowtorch to create art. Uh, it was just so much fun and so much uh, weird experience that you wouldn't get just sitting at home. <laughs> Very cool. All right, Ted, um, if our listeners have questions and they'd like to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, I spend most of my time now on Mastodon. You can look me up at uh, Ted Spence at IndieWeb.Social. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I write there from time to time and I uh, would love to see you at Bellevue College if you ever come out on campus. Very cool. All right. Yeah, my sister-in-law used to live in uh, in Redmond there, Kirkman, Redmond there, so... Um, and I still have family down in Puyallup. So if I make it over there, I'll get in touch. Love to it. Great. If our listeners have uh, feedback, they'd like to get in touch with me or the show, they can get me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. And where are you at, Mark? Just Twitch? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much just Twitch. I kind of, you know, bumped off of uh, of Twitter. I set up a Mastodon account, but I didn't really do anything with it. So yeah, just come see me at Twitch. Twitch.tv slash code rushed. I'm live there for goodness sakes. Doesn't get more social than that. Well, look forward to you streaming some games there too. Oh, I don't do the games, Ted. I'm Ah. only writing code, man. I have no time for games. All right. I won't come out. If I dive into a game, I won't come out. And there'll be no documentation for my API. (laughs) Not unless Ted gets there and tells you to write some documentation. I know. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here, uh, but I can't spin off documentation as fast as I'd like, so you'll have to invite <laughs> me back sometime. All right. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show, Ted. Thank you Thanks very much. Thanks so much. All Thanks, right. Ted. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .net. <laughs>